This is Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come and eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One, owned five, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but for the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 7. To Luke chapter 7. Before we dig in too far, a quick question. Does anybody like to throw a party? Are there any party planners, hostess with the mostess, all those kinds of things in the room? I'm not going to sign you up for a task just of your heart. Uh, does anyone like to throw a party? Maybe it's a party just like this. This is your dream party, or, or maybe you like a, a simpler party. I, I have to be honest with you. Uh, I'm not a party planner, party giver party organizer. My best idea is, hey, let's grab lunch at Jimmy John's. That's, that, that's kind of, of, of my deal. But some of you like to throw a party. Some of you like to go to a party. Some of you like to be involved in that, but it sounds like a lot of work to me. Uh, when, when you plan a party, if, if that's going to be your gift, if that's going to be kind of who you are, that you are a party person, it, it, it involves that you've got to plan a menu, and it's got to be just the right menu, and the things have all kind of got to match, and they've got to complement each other. You've got to figure out what the theme of the party is. Parties have to have a, a, a theme. Uh, I think my last one was Sesame Street. Uh, you, you have to... 
You have to have an idea of, uh, of what the decorations are going to be and what the flatware is going to be and the tableware and all those kinds of things. And then you've got to work through the guest list. And you've got to invite some interesting people and you've got to invite some people that you have to invite. And you've got to make sure that the people that are going to come are going to mingle. And maybe you have different parties for different crowds, but you have thought through this guest list. And so when the moment of the party comes, when that day comes, i got to believe that you are full of excitement, but also a little bit full of, ooh, I hope this goes okay. I hope nothing crazy happens at this party. I hope nothing happens that I haven't planned for or I haven't expected. In fact, I think probably in the back of your mind, you've got to be thinking, I hope this party is memorable, <clears throat> but not too memorable. Uh, I need this not to get off the rails or to get crazy. We're looking this morning at a passage of Scripture of a party, uh, a dinner party that was planned, organized. All of those things I think were probably planned. Here's the menu. Here is the guest list. Here is the, the flatware that we're, we're going to use, the tableware. Here's the decorations uh, that we're going to have. And, and on that day, I'm sure he said, boy, I hope this thing goes the way that I, I planned. I hope nothing goes wrong with this party. I hope it's memorable, but not too memorable. Well, buddy, uh, it turned out to be a pretty memorable a dinner party. Uh, in fact, I think that it doesn't go the way he planned in any way, shape, or form. In fact, if you take a look at it, it, it really becomes one of the most memorable dinner parties that we have in Scripture. And I think that you could just kind of summarize uh, this story as being this dinner party as being the story of three sinners and a Savior. Three sinners and a Savior that are at this party. And so as we kind of lean in and look over people's shoulders and we have the opportunity to just kind of watch this dinner party, we don't get to eat today, but we get to watch the dinner party and be a little bit of a fly on the wall at this dinner party. Let's see some of the things that we notice. Now, the first person that we meet here is that we meet a woman. We don't get very far into the text before we discover some things about this woman. When she arrives at this party, she is uninvited. When she arrives at this party, she is unexpected. When she arrives at this party, I think it's safe to say that she is unwanted. We don't really know a whole lot about this woman. In fact, we don't know anything about this woman at all. The one thing that it tells us is that several people in the passage of Scripture call her a sinner. Now, here's the interesting thing. It seems as though everybody at the table said, yep, that's who she is. She's a sinner. Now, there's a part of us that has a little bit of curiosity. There's a part of us that, that's just kind of like, I wonder what her sin was. I wonder what it is. In fact, you can kind of take a look at some people who have talked about this passage of Scripture, and they make all kinds of guesses as to what her sin was. Here's what we need to know. Everyone at the table knew what the sin was, and we don't. And it's none of our business. It doesn't really matter what her sin was, but there were some parts of her life that were spiritually broken, and everybody knew what those things were. And because of that brokenness in her life, because of those things that are true, she is uninvited to this party, she is unexpected, and when she shows up, she is unwanted. But 
but she is also unhindered because she has heard that Jesus is going to be in this house at this time and there aren't gates out front. And nothing is going to stop her from seeing Jesus. Nothing is going to stop her from getting close to Jesus. Nothing is going to stop her from touching Jesus. Nothing is going to stop her from expressing her deep gratitude to Jesus. In fact, we see here in the passage the complete scene that she makes, and we, we, we may double back on that in a minute, but, but it's a little wild, all the stuff that happens in this place. And her expression of that that completely interrupts the entire meal, the entire flow of the dinner party is off the rails. Again, we don't know her backstory. We don't know whether she has had a previous encounter with Jesus. We don't know whether Jesus and her have ever met, whether they've ever had a conversation before. We don't know whether she is a person that was just in the crowds, that maybe started in the back of the crowds, but her deep affection and interest in what Jesus was saying and the kind of grace that he talked about made her come to the front of the crowd. We don't know. We don't know whether she has been healed by Jesus. We don't know whether Jesus has healed someone that she loved. We don't know. But we do know that she has been determined to be unhindered. Nothing is going to stand in the way of getting close to Jesus. Now this comes at some degree of cost. We, we see this cost show up in a couple of different ways. First of all, it tells us that she brings this, this alabaster flask of ointment. The assumption that we make, and it's a good assumption, is that whatever is inside this ointment, this perfume that is inside of this flask, it's worth something. It's worth some money. It has value. It is special occasion kind of stuff. In fact, as we take a look at it, probably what this is, is that this thing has value until the moment you open it up. When you crack that thing open, the value is gone because it's been exposed, it's been used, it's been poured out. And so there is this heirloom that is part of her life. Either she has acquired it, it's been given to her, it's been passed down to her. She has this one thing that she has that is of great value. And she can only use it once. She can only use it once. I don't know where she kept it in her house. I don't know what shelf she kept it on. I don't know whether she kept it hidden. I don't know whether she kept it safe. I don't know if it was in a place of prominent display, but I think that she looked at it every once in a while and said, I wonder what day I'm going to use that. I can use it once. It's of great value. And I have to pick the exact right day to use it. And when she hears that Jesus is in this house and there is not a gate on the door. She picks up that flask and says, today is that day. And breaks that open. Fills that entire place with that perfume and that aroma. And watches the value of this object completely dissipate. 
but its purpose be fulfilled. As she pours it over Jesus, makes a complete scene of herself and of her affection and of her love for Jesus. This comes at great cost to her. But it's not just cash value. It comes at a great cost in terms of the social impact that it has. There, there are some idea that, that this, this event probably happened in an outer courtyard. There'd be a table where the invited people could sit. But if you wanted to, you could just kind of wander into the courtyard and stand around on the outside, eavesdrop on the party. She's not going to eavesdrop on the party. She's not standing on the outside. She moves straight to the center of the table and, 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 and pours herself all over Jesus, weeps over him, washes his feet with her hair, pours this expensive ointment over her. That wasn't part of the dinner plan. In fact, the host, the Pharisee, looks at her and he says to himself, well, this proves it. Jesus is nothing. Jesus is no prophet. Because if he was from God, he would know what kind of woman this was, that he is letting her touch him. Remember we talked about this idea of spiritual contagion, that if you, if you touch something unclean or broken or sinful, it would make you. And he says, look, she's touching him. Her uncleanness, her brokenness, her sinfulness is leaking all over him. Now, this is what one man thinks. But I think there's quite a few people in the room who are thinking it as well that are looking at this circumstance, that are seeing this situation, and they are coming to the exact same conclusion. And I think that the host is particularly upset because she is in his house, sitting at his table and ruining his party. Which really brings us to the second person that we've, we've just met, and that is we meet the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are the kind of guys that are experts on right and wrong. Mostly that you're wrong and they're right. You ever meet anybody like, like that? Or you see, Never mind. Uh, they are experts on how everybody else is wrong. In fact, just in the previous passage of Scripture, Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Well, what just happened? This guy just got offended by Jesus. He is letting this woman touch him. He acts as though he doesn't know what kind of sinful person this is. The whole context of that previous passage was arguing about John the Baptist. And remember, the Pharisees had decided that John the Baptist not only was not from God, but that he had a demon because he was so weird. So now you've heard from the Pharisee that he is offended by John the Baptist. He is offended by this woman. He is offended by Jesus. He is an expert on everybody else's shortcomings. 
Eh, but he feels like he's doing okay. I know what you got wrong. 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 But I feel pretty good about me. That's the story of the Pharisee. The only thing is that the Pharisee here is a little bit more complicated than that. We see his judgmental spirit, but there's also some things that are between the lines. He invited Jesus to dinner. Now, I think that there is some debate as to why he invited Jesus to dinner. I think most people think he set a trap for Jesus, that, that he was uh, going to try to make Jesus look bad. Uh, I don't know what it was. But I think there's also a possibility that he was curious about Jesus. Well, we have another Pharisee in the Bible. His name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus hangs out with all of these people that are anti-Jesus. And one night, he sneaks off, and he has a conversation with Jesus and says, we know that you're from God. And Jesus begins to unpack what it means to be from God and what it means to possibly for Nicodemus to know God. And at the end of the story, at the end of the New Testament, Nicodemus is a follower of Jesus. It could be that this man is trying to set up a trap for Jesus. But he also could have a little Nicodemus in him. I don't know. All of my friends hate this guy. They say that he's the, 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 the worst thing possible. But every time he talks, there's something about what he says that draws me in. I'm going to invite him to the house. I don't know. But he invited Jesus to the house. Jesus says to him, Simon, we get his name halfway through the passage. He says to him, Simon, I have something I want to say. I'm fascinated by Jesus. Announced that. Jesus almost asked permission. Simon, do you, do you, do you mind if I, if, I, if I say something here? And, and Simon says, go ahead, teacher. He had some openness to what Jesus has to say. And in fact, when Jesus tells the story, he turns to Simon and says, Simon, you know what the right answer is? And, and Simon says, well, I suppose. And he gets the right answer. He didn't like having the right answer. He didn't like the answer. He'd rather preferred not to have been backed into that corner. But he has to admit Jesus is right. And he doesn't argue it. He doesn't fight back. I don't know what to do with Simon. He's got an attitude problem. Raise your hand if you see an attitude problem with Simon. There's an attitude problem. There's a pharisaical attitude. I mean, he's a Pharisee. That's where it comes from. But man, there's also some stuff there that I don't know. Maybe God is working in his life. You know, it's interesting when you read through the New Testament, some of the people that Jesus does miracles for or interacts with, the Scripture tells us their name. And some of them, it doesn't tell us their name. In fact, this woman, her name is not mentioned, but Simon's name is mentioned. We don't know why that is, but there is a theory that says one of the reasons why people's names are recorded in the New Testament by name is because people in the early church know them. Like, oh yeah, I go to church with that guy. That's where his story comes from? 
So if you are a person who was just passing through, maybe your name doesn't get recorded. But if you are a person who became a follower of Jesus and became connected to the living church of Jesus, sometimes your name is recorded because people in that church know you. I don't know if that's the case here. Man, this is a messed up dude. But he may have been curious. He was teachable. And even when he didn't like it, he had to admit that Jesus was right. So we meet a woman, we meet a Pharisee, and then we meet Jesus. We, 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 meet, we meet the Savior. And, and Jesus in this moment, in the middle of this socially awkward kind of, ooh, boy, everyone's just kind of holding their breath. What's going to happen here in this moment? He tells the story. And he tells the story of a man who has two debtors. I think it's important to notice that the story begins with a man who is owed the money. My mind runs to the people with the debts. I can relate to those guys better than I can with the money lender. But the story starts with the person who is owed the money. But two people owe the man money. One of them owes 500 denarii. Anybody ever write a check for 500 denarii? You got to put two I's on the end. It's, it's denarii. The other one owe, owes 50 denarii. Now, a denarii is a day's wages. Do the math. Well, we're talking about the first guy owes about $80,000, about a year and a half's worth of salary, maybe a little bit less. The first, the second person owes $7,500, $8,000. Whatever it is, it's 10 times. It's about a year and a half's worth of salary. Both of them are forgiven. The question that Jesus is going to ask is, which one loves the lender the most? And the answer is, well, I suppose the person who was forgiven the most. But here's the reality. Both were forgiven. Both were completely had their debts wiped out. You know, it doesn't take us a whole lot to walk into the feeling of having debt, does it? I don't know what everybody's debt story is today. I don't know what some of the debt stories of your past are. But just about everybody in this room has known what it feels like to have debt. Obligation. Weight. Heaviness. Fear. Concern, am I ever going to get out from this? We could line everybody up. We're not going to do this, trust me, okay? But we could line everybody up from the highest debt to the lowest debt. But if I were the power invested in me, if I could tell you that all of those debts were canceled, they'd be happy on this end, and they'd be happy on this end. Because whether it's a big debt or a little debt, Oh, forgiveness is great. And we get freed from that. 
And so one of the things that is here to be thought and to be considered is the fact that it is the big debt that brings the greatest joy. But don't miss the fact that both of them owe a debt. All of us owe a debt to God. Simon struggled. The Pharisee struggled because he thought his debt wasn't that big. So while the woman is absolutely loses herself in gratitude and softness of heart and tenderness of heart and worship response, he sits with his arms crossed. What's the difference between her response and his response? Well, I think there are several differences. For one, he never fully came to terms with his own debt. He, he just overlooked his debt or he thought his debt didn't really matter or he thought his debt wasn't understood or maybe he hadn't had his sins forgiven. And so part of the reason why he can't celebrate the forgiveness of sins is because he's either overlooked his own sin, he's overlooked his own debt, or he has forgotten of the power of when those chains fell off in his life. And because his own debt doesn't weigh on him, he has a difficult time celebrating. He also has a difficult time celebrating when someone with greater debts is forgiven. I don't know what it is, but he just kind of looks around and says, I don't think they deserve that forgiveness. I mean, I understand mine was a small debt, but that's a big debt. You know what you're going to do to the economy if you forgive that huge amount of debt? That person doesn't deserve it. They should pay the price for the mistakes that they've made. But instead, not only should you be overjoyed that your debt has been forgiven, but if you're sitting next to someone who has had bigger debts forgiven, isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome that whatever weight you felt and was freed from, they feel that even more because they've had even greater weight and debt fall off of them? Sometimes we can have a hardness of heart like Simon because we've overlooked our own debt. Because we are unwilling to celebrate the forgiveness of other debtors. And then we haven't stopped to think about what it means that we have a forgiving God. We've sung in both of our services this morning about being at the throne of Jesus. You know whose throne that is? It is the throne of the one who forgives debt. It's owed to him. The money lender, he was due that money. But he said, I'm going to wipe it clean. I'm going to wipe it clean. When we worship, when we sing about our Heavenly Father, the one that we sing about is the one who forgives and wipes out spiritual debt. That's awesome. So what does this mean for us this morning? There's really two things that I want you to hear and that I want you to take away from this morning. One, 
I want you to take away from the fact that you have access to God. You have access to Jesus. It's kind of interesting. There's a little bit of a theme here in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus keeps going to people's houses. We didn't talk about it, but a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus is invited to a tax collector's house. And he shows up. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Jesus was invited to a Gentile's house. And he is on his way to that house. And today, he is invited to a Pharisee's house. And he shows up. And he meets the woman who has been called a sinner. He would have gone to her house too. You know what this tells me? You know what this tells you? Jesus will show up anywhere. Jesus will show up anywhere. If you invite him, he will show up. Tax collector, Gentile, Pharisee, sinful person, he will show up. If you invite him, he will show up. You, 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 all of us have access to Jesus. He'll show up to your house, to your heart. He will show up. The second thing I want you to know is that you have access to His forgiveness. To His forgiveness. Here's the struggle that Simon had. And he's not the last person to have it. Simon knew that there were other people who were more messed up than him. He'd look down the block. Man, my life ain't a mess like theirs. He'd look across the table of Thanksgiving and say, man, I, I'm the most put-together person. This whole family's crazy. Look at the sinful people I work for. And he could make a list of tons of people that had more sin in their life than he did. And you know what? Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. There are some of you that have not committed nearly the number of sins of some other people. It's true. I bet you Simon the Pharisee lived a pretty good life. He had some judgment issues. There were some heart issues that needed to be taken care of. But if you stood up this woman and stood him up and said, who's lived the more moral life? He had, he had it, it's hands down, he had. But he still had a debt that needed to be paid. You may be the second most upright person in your neighborhood. You might be number eight in the entire state for moral uprightness. But you still have a debt. It may not be the big debt. But it's a debt, and it holds weight and bondage and guilt, and there's a chain on your life, and it separates you from God. But I want you to know that you have access to the forgiveness of Jesus. He will come, and He will forgive. He says to the woman that 
And everybody in the room says, look at that sinner. He says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And his last words to her were, go in peace. Whole, free, forgiven, released. We're not going to line you up by financial debt. And we're not going to line you up by spiritual debt. But if you will seek the forgiveness of Jesus, you can leave this place in peace. Go 